We're going to be in Matthew 28, and we're going to be in Matthew 1, and we're going to be in Matthew 2. So find your places. If you have your Bible, they'll be on the screen as well. We are starting a new series today called All, because the themes in Matthew are pretty comprehensive, and I think you're going to find that they are very applicable to what you and I are doing today. What I want to do today, I have not done in a very long time, but it's long overdue. It is time for you to find an index card and a pen. It is time for a pop quiz. All right, two questions. That means 50 points a question. So go ahead and grab that. You're not turning this in for a grade. You're not going to raise your hand if you got them all right or missed them all. This is for self-grading and evaluation. It's in, it is pr prodded by a statistic I saw that I'm going to share with you in a minute. So here are the questions, and you don't get long. Okay? You either know them or you don't. Okay? First question is where do I find or where do I find the Great Commission? That's the first question. Where do I find the Great Commission? And of course, if you don't know what that is, then that's kind of the point of the first question. And the second one is, what is the Great Commission? And I'm not asking for a quote. Just kind of tell me in your own words, what is the Great Commission? If you know what it is, define it, explain it. Just a few words, just a few phrases. Okay? While you're doing that, um, I'm going to just kind of give you the, the title today. We're answering the question, what is Jesus up to? What is Jesus up to? Okay, let me give you the answers to the questions because I know you're eager to know. First is, the Great Commission is uh, something that is found in the Bible. If you just said that, that's good enough for me. I'll that's, give yourself a check. It's in the Bible. Specifically, it's in um, the New Testament. You can find it in, at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the beginning of Acts. And it's worded differently in each place. Today, we're going to focus in on the more detailed answer in the end of Matthew. The second question is, what does it say? And that is, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and surely I'll be with you till the end of the age. It's basically our marching orders. If you said it was, it's our job, it's our mission, it's what we're left here on earth to do until he takes us home, all of those are good answers. Anything that basically gets at this ess the essence of what is the Great Commission saying, it is what we are here to do as followers of Christ. And, you're doing great. You're got, you, get, you got that one right, too. Okay? Now, don't, I don't want to know how many of you got hundreds. Let me tell you the statistic that bothered me so much that made me do this. So, Barna Research Group, Barna.org, does specifically Christian research. They do a lot of research for churches and ministries, in particular, gospel ministries. And they, in 2018, they did a study um, on American church attenders. That means people who actually show up. Okay? And that was what percentage of them could answer yet, could get both of those questions right? And the answer is 17%. Less than 2 in 10. That bothered me. Okay? Now, I think y'all might have gotten able to beat 17%. I feel pretty close, pretty good, that if you've been here for longer than a year, then you probably have heard us say it multiple times because we make a big deal about that. But at the same time, we don't necessarily always use that phrase, Great Commission, because Great Commission is not in the Bible. That word, that phrase is not there. Um, it's called the Great Commission because it's Jesus commissioning his disciples to go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. We talked about that in detail last week in our message on the resurrection. Okay? Um, he does that, like I said, he ends. It's kind of like if you want to know what Jesus thinks is important, what were his last words 
before he went home to be with the Father. And it's the Great Commission. So it's important. All right. So um, what's Jesus up to? How do we know that we need food to eat? How do we know that we should eat? Most of us don't need much help with this, right? We, we are really good at eating. But the reason you and I know that we need to eat is because if we don't eat for a while, we get hungry. There's this gnawing feeling in ourselves that there's something that I've got this craving for. I'm not quite sure what. Um, maybe it's Oreo ice cream. I'm not sure. Pizza sounds, you know, whatever. But I know I need to, it, I must be, there must be something in this world that would cause me to be able to be satisfied from that craving. And, of course, hunger drives us to eat. If you're thirsty, that craving is there to get you to drink because our bodies need drink. We need to drink. We can go, like, what, three days without water, three weeks without food, what is it, three minutes without air? I've got them out of order now, but you get the idea. Uh, we need these things. And so God has wired us physically to crave things, to teach us you need that, and there's something that exists that satisfies that craving, that desire in the physical world. He also gives us that in the spiritual realm. He gives us a craving for purpose. He gives us a craving to be loved, to be known. Those kinds of things. Those cravings are there to tell us that those cravings can be satisfied. Okay? Now, what we tend to do is we tend to satisfy our cravings, whether they're physical or spiritual, we tend to satisfy those cravings by chasing things that are temporary. They don't satisfy for very long. And that's usually giving into temptation and we chase something that we shouldn't chase. What is Jesus up to? Jesus is up to helping you and I identify what really satisfies. What really satisfies you and me, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, you name it, relationally. He wants us to find satisfaction, okay? But for us to get there, we have to recognize that we have a problem that creates, that is created by our sin that keeps us from getting there without help. And Jesus provides that help through the cross of Christ. And the resurrection proves that he can do what he says he's doing. And so we continue to look at the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in this church over and over and over because he is the only hope that you and I have to find true and lasting satisfaction. And when I say lasting, I mean forever. Abundant life is no good if it doesn't last. Eternal life is no good if it's not abundant. We need both. And it's available to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord God. So my prayer today is that you and I will get a better idea of what's the answer to this question. What's Jesus up to? And what does that mean for you and me? How do we respond to that? So with that, let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've spoken through your word that you've revealed yourself, Lord God, through creation and through the written word. And, oh, and by the way, you showed up too. The word made flesh. And so, Lord, as we think about these things and what the implications are, as we look at this 2,000-year-old gospel account by Matthew, Lord, I pray that you would help us recognize that there's a reason that you, you revealed it and there's a reason you've preserved it. It's so that through it you might change us to find full and lasting satisfaction in life. No, it's not about us. Lord, thank you for reminding us of that. It's about you. But Lord, you delight in blessing us 
so that we might delight in being a blessing to others. So guide and direct us through this today and help us to figure out what does this look like in our lives here and now today. We ask it in Christ's name. So last week we did Matthew 28, 1 through 10, the resurrection account, okay? And 11 through 15 talks about the guards and the, and the, the religious leaders, and we're not going to go there today. Starting in verse 8 and 17, though, 16, though, we're going to pick up, and I want to read some of that, and then we're going to focus on 18, 19, and 20 for just a moment, and then we're going to jump to the beginning of Matthew where we're going to start, okay? Now this is the series I told you is called All. But there's really a subtitle to it. And the all is all nations, I'm sorry, all authority, all nations, all allegiance. And one of the commentators I, I like to read uh, for the, in preparation for this, his name is Douglas Sean O'Donnell. I've I never really heard of him until I started reading this, his, his uh, commentary. And I just love what, what I'm seeing there. And he's the one that came up with that. So um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to take credit for someone else's work. Uh, all authority, Jesus has all authority so that all nations might obey all that he has commanded. That's the bottom line for today. Jesus has all authority so that all nations might obey all that he has commanded. In other words, give them full allegiance. Okay? Now, we are in a nation of nations. There's many nations, tribes, ethnicities, um, people groups, you name it. Basically, all people on planet Earth past, present, and future, are included in this. And the Gospel of Matthew is kind of like Christianity 101. It's like, what's Jesus all about? He is about leveraging the authority that he has gotten from God the Father in such a way that he can bless the nations to be a blessing to the nations as they do so fully pledged to allegiance to Christ. Okay? There's no kind of here. Okay? The old saying, he, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all of your life, is really, really appropriate. Okay, so let's look at these verses here and let's see what, what Matthew has to say. Now, we're starting at the end. Have you all ever watched a, a TV series and it's like the very beginning of the episode, you see something happen and it's like, um, whoa, that was shocking. Where did that come from? I was, you know, I've been watching the last several weeks and then it says six months earlier or three days before or something like that. It's a flashback and then you catch back up the whole episode. That's kind of what we're going to be doing for months, okay? Because it's going to take a while to go through the whole book of Matthew. But I'm going to tell you, it, it, is, not, it is not a boring, it is a, an exciting march through the life of Jesus. And of course it ends with the death, but it doesn't end in with the death, it ends with the resurrection. And so, and that springs us into the rest of the New Testament. So it's really important that we spend time looking at the life of Jesus, right? I mean, if you say you're a Christ follower and you don't know anything about Christ, it's kind of hard to follow him, right? So with that, let's jump in, starting in verse 16. Matthew writes, then the 11, to, oh, I wanted to start in verse 10, so, or 9. Okay, here's why. Because it's going to tell us what Jesus told Mary, Mary Magdalene and, and the other Mary he tells them what to do. Verse 9, he says to them, as they bump into him, suddenly Jesus met them. They're running back to tell the disciples. Greetings, he says to them. They came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Okay, the brothers of the other 11 disciples, okay, minus Judas Iscariot. And then, so they do that because the angel told them to do it, and then Jesus tells them to do it. Now, verse 16. Now, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee... 
which is north of the region of Judea. So Jerusalem and Bethlehem are cities in the region of Judea. North of there, you have the region of Galilee, and, and that's where they're headed. That's where Nazareth is, among other things. Uh, so they, go, they went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now here comes the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, so he's speaking to the disciples. I imagine there's more than just the 11 there. Probably Mary Magdalene's there, uh, the other Mary, uh, maybe Jesus' mother, probably some of the other disciples that were maybe a part of the 70. We don't know for sure, but this is what we know. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've, everything that I've commanded you, and surely you will be with me until the end of the age. Now, I think you can see it, but I'm going to go back and point it out. The, the words all and everything are there, and this is kind of where um, I think O'Donnell got this idea of all authority, all nations, all allegiance. Starting in verse 18, all authority, there it is spelled out, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. A couple of things here. One is um, uh, all authority on, in heaven and on earth. So it's not just, I mean, all authority on earth, that's impressive, right? If you've got all the authority on earth or the most authority on earth, that would be impressive to all of us. Um, but then you throw in heaven and you're like, whoa, that's way, way more than I could ever imagine. I'm going to tell you how much, this is a crazy statement he makes. We just hear it and we go, yeah, that's Jesus. That's, yeah, this is a crazy statement. I don't even think President Obama would have made this statement. Okay? What was his book? Hope, Audacity of Hope? Wasn't that the name of it? Something like that? And I don't even think President Trump would make that statement. Okay? We have some pretty audacious people in the world. Do we not? They make some pretty audacious claims. But nobody comes close to this claim. And Jesus makes it. And he stands by it. And he delivers, by the way. Okay? All authority. Then he goes to all nations. Therefore, in light of this authority, what does he say? Therefore, go and make disciples. Now, some people want to emphasize the go, and that's fine. I've been told by people who understand English grammar that make disciples is the, act, is the imperative here. Make disciples, it's an active ongoing imperative. That's what we're supposed to go do. And go or is kind of how you do, is part of how you do it. So it's as you go about life or even intentionally pack up and go. You know, people debate that. You read the commentaries and like, is it this one? Is it this one? I'm like, uh, can we just say it's both and move on? Because I think either one applies. Therefore, go and make disciples. Okay, and we talk about that a lot here, right? If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you want to love your neighbor as yourself, the best way you and I can do that is to teach them to follow you as you follow him. In other words, let's go make disciples together. Okay, that's really what we're getting at. Rick Warren likes to say it this way, a great commitment to the great commission and the great commandment will build a great church. The great commission is what we're reading here. The great commandment is love of God, love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 12, 30-ish. Uh, no, sorry, Mark 12, 30-ish. It's in Matthew 2, 22, 37 through 39, something like that. Okay? All right, so, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Bap then he tells you how. These are the two basic things. Baptizing them. Hey. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity, one God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Doesn't betray that he is one God, even though he reveals himself in three different ways. Baptizing them and teaching them. Now, what is he teaching them? This is a trick question. Pay, pay attention. 
teaching them to teaching them all that I have commanded you is not what it says. Right? What does it say? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Okay? Um, Jesus thought like a Hebrew, and the Hebrew mindset was whenever you hear, it means you hear with a posture to obey. It's not like the Western thought and Greek thought to hear and ponder. I will consider whether or not I will obey mom or dad. No, it's here is to hear is to obey. That's the posture, and that's the attitude and the heart that God calls, and Jesus is spelling out here. So therefore, we have what's hap- what is happening here. First of all, making, um, making disciples of all nations. There's the second one. So we have all authority, we have all nations, that's all people. And then the last one really speaks to all allegiance, and it says it in a different way, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, or everything. Everything means all, all means everything, and of course, all means all. So we don't have any... There's really no confusion here. All means all. All, If I'm obeying all that Jesus has commanded, that means I'm pledging full allegiance to him. Okay, It's kind of corny, but I pledge allegiance to the lamb. really works for me. I like it. Okay, And then he says this, because the temptation for them and for us, honestly, if we're being honest, is to be afraid to do this. Isn't it? There are times when you know you should be obeying Jesus and you feel afraid. You're tempted just like, I'm just going quiet. I'm going undercover. I'm a closet Christian or whatever. It's because I don't want to do this because I'm afraid. Fill in the blank. Jesus said, look, I'm going to be with you. You don't need to be afraid. I will be with you. He tells this to Abraham. He tells this to Moses. He's just going down the list of some of the greats in the Bible. Okay, so there's the Great Commission. This is how he ends the Bible. Uh, not the Bible, but he ends the book of Matthew. Matthew does. So how does he begin? And I want you to see that he kind of creates some bookends. So let's flip to Matthew 1. And uh, for the full-blown messages on chapters 1 and 2, you can go to our website, gracetoday.net, and you'll see the old messages that we did at Christmas in December. We did Matthew 1, a couple of weeks. We did Matthew 2, a couple of weeks. All right, so next week we're going to pick it up in Matthew 3. But I want to review just a couple of things and just point out a couple of things I think that are important as we think about what is Jesus up to? What is he up to? He's about loving God and loving people in such a way that we make disciples who make disciples and we lead others to do the same. Okay? And if you ask us what are we about at Grace Christian Fellowship, that's exactly what I would say. Okay? You can give me a list of all these other great ministries and things we could do, but at the end of the day, if we're not doing that, then we don't need to be doing those things. They're good, good things. We want to be laser-focused at what we do here. This is why we sometimes say when someone suggests something, we should do this, we say, that's a great idea for someone else. That's not in our focus. We are really trying to be focused here, right? You know the, the, uh, the analogy of the flashlight versus a laser beam, right? They're both light beams. One doesn't cut anything, flashlight, and one can cut steel because a laser is focused, so focused light that it can literally cut through steel. We want to be laser focused, okay? Which means we have to say no to almost everything else that people suggest. Now, there are a lot of ways to do this, so it, it doesn't mean we're only doing one single activity, but it means that our mission is very clear and straightforward. Now, the genealogy of Jesus. Yes, believe it or not, we preach the genealogy. I'm not going to do that again. Maybe not ever. Just kidding. But, but we're going to do verse 1 today. So look at what it says in very first, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus' family tree. Okay? If you do, how many of you ever do Ancestry.com? Anybody do that? There's your family tree, right? You've got a genealogy going on there. It's pretty cool. 
This is the genealogy of whom? Jesus the Messiah. Okay, Jesus is his name. We'll see what that means in a second. Messiah is the word for uh, anointed one. It's the Hebrew word, Messiah, and it's the same word as the Greek word, Christ. Both of them mean the same thing, anointed one. And in the old times, they anointed prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus is all three of those, but he's especially the king of kings, not just a king. And so this is why it adds son of David. So if Jesus is around, if we, okay, we got... A.D., sorry, A.D., B.C., okay, so G, this is set around Jesus' birthday, roughly zero. It's not exactly because they've learned some things, but you get the idea. David is a 1,000 years before Jesus, okay? 1,000 years. How old is our country? 250, whatever. That's a long time ago, okay? It's older than, okay? So 1,000 years ago, you have David, son of David. In 2 Samuel 7, you'll read that when... It, when um, we learn through the life of David that he's going to have a son down the road who's going to be the king of kings. And he's not just going to be the king of the Jews like David. He's going to be the king of all nations. Okay, now we're into the all nations. You hear it? It's already there. Okay? Um, and here's the next thing. Then it says the son of Abraham. Who's Abraham? Well, okay, zero. thousand years you get to David. thousand years more you get to Abraham. 2,000 years B.C., 4,000 years ago, we have Abraham, called Abram, and then his name was changed. Abraham wasn't a Jew until he became a Jew. Okay? He wasn't a Hebrew until he became a Hebrew. Because God's like, I need to pick a group of people that nobody would pick to show that I can do amazing things through these people, even though there's no way you would ever believe anything good could happen through these people. And I choose you, Abraham, to be the first one. And so there began the covenant promise that he made with Abraham. So just to take a quick peek at that, Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, kind of gives us, the, in a nutshell, what was the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Covenant. All right, so it says in verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. This is what he's saying in a nutshell, Darren's paraphrase. I want you to pack up your family. I want you to pack up your business of over 100 employees. And I want you to start heading north. I'll tell you when you get there. That's what he said to Abraham. And he did it. So that tells me something. That tells me Abraham was convinced that whatever voices he was hearing in his head or in his ears, I need to listen. And this is what, if you want to say what was his premier characteristic, it was faith. He believed. He heard the words of God and he believed. And the proof in that is that his actions reflected what he said he believed. And so off he goes. And then, Jesus, then um, God says, here's the, here's the actual covenant he's making with, with Abraham. Verse 2. I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. We call them Israel today. But it's not just Israel, is it? And I will bless you. Anybody up for a blessing from God? And I will make your name great. Here we are 4,000 years later. We're still talking about him. And he's not the villain. And you will be a blessing. Because God knows it's more blessed to give than receive. Verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will, whoever curses you, I will curse. That's called a good big brother. I like that. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Difference between a contract and a covenant. 
Okay, a covenant and a contract are both agreements between two parties. Shake hands, agree, right? Contracts 50-50. You do what, I, you, you, do what you say you're going to do, and I'll do what I said I'm going to do. If you stop, I'm stopping. That's a contract. Covenant, 100%, 100%. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do, whether you do what you said you were going to do or not. Okay, that's why we call it a marriage covenant, not a marriage contract. Okay? All right, so now that's the covenant he makes with Abraham. Let's flip back to Matthew chapter 1. Now we're moving from the genealogy to Joseph. And now this isn't Joseph, coat of many colors. That was back near Abraham. We're now 2,000 years later, and we're at Joseph and Mary. Joseph, the father of Jesus, but not really. Wait a minute. How does that work? So remember... Mary's a virgin. This isn't make-believe. She has a baby as a virgin. How can that happen? He explains. God does through an angel. When Joseph is like, I'm going to put her away because clearly she's been unfaithful, which is clearly wrong, then this is why. He says, um, and I'm going to start reading in verse 20, but after he had considered this, after Joseph had considered divorcing her quietly because he didn't want to disrespect her, he, re- he loved her, he cared about her, but he knew he couldn't marry her without shaming her family, his family, and God which was wrong, he'd learned. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Oh, is that important? Uh, Yes, genealogy. If you look at the very end of the genealogy, in verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and the Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary at home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. There, the name Jesus means the Lord saves, or the Lord is my salvation. Okay? So there we have that. So now we're seeing, and, and what happens is Joseph says, all this took place to fulfill, let's see, uh, what, all this took place to, to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. What did he just do? He just embraced Jesus as his son, legally. Now Jesus is legally in the line of David. Why? Because his daddy is. But he's not in the bloodline of Jesus. Oh, wait. Go to Luke. Look at the genealogy of Luke, and instead of coming through David's son Solomon, Matthew, David's son Nathan, different wife, Mary, bloodline. I kid you not, I'm reading through my Bible reading plan this morning, and that's exactly what I read today. I'm like, what timing? God, you're so fun. All right, so there's that. Um, So Joseph makes Jesus legit. God makes Jesus legit through Joseph. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Legally. And, of course, through the blood, through her. So even though the, the religious leaders, they don't get this, they're, they're way behind. They still think Jesus was born in Nazareth and stuff like that. It, it's all coming together because God's working in such a way that when we look back 2,000 years later, knowing more than they knew in some cases, we're like, wow, this is unbelievable how all this fits together. Chapter 2, the Magi visit the, uh, visit the Messiah. Magi, wise men, wise guys, whatever you want to call them. These are not Jews, okay? So this is important, all nations, right? They are coming from afar, okay? Not from a fire, but afar away, okay? Some of them, th- some people think uh, modern-day Iran, some think modern-day Iraq, some think modern-day uh, Jordan, 
where the Bedouins are. We don't know. We just think. We, you know, just east. They came from the east. And these were wealthy people who were very, very smart and able to study the stars and learn things. They were also able to read a lot of history that was out there, which there wasn't a lot written. But there was scriptures, and they probably have read the Old Testament scriptures more than once. See Numbers 24 for that whole prophecy. And they decide it's worth their time, their energy, their money, and their reputations to show up and worship and honor this king of kings that's going to show up, Jesus. Now, they don't know his name's Jesus at the time. And so they, they get all their stuff together. They get their exhibition together. And uh, they, they come hundreds of miles. And they don't know where else to go. So they go, well, let's go to Israel. And I think there's a palace. Let's go find the king that's in that palace and find out if he's having a son. And they get there, and Herod has no clue because he's not really who they think he is. In fact, he is threatened by this truth and revelation. And so things get really bad really quickly. Meanwhile, the wise men find Jesus because the star keeps moving around, and I know, go figure that out. How does the star move? How do we do that? I don't know, but God can do that. If God can speak stars into existence, he can move them around whenever he wants to. If he wants to make the sun stand still, that's his prerogative. Um, verse 9, after they, that is the wise guys, had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star, uh, I'm sorry, had heard the king, that would have been Herod, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Scripture is very precise, okay? People didn't just translate that loosely or casually. The star moves and then stops. I want to make sure you get the right house, okay? It rose, went ahead of them, stopped. Okay, verse 10. Oh, where the child was. Notice it doesn't say where the infant was, where the baby was, different word, okay? Which means time has passed since Mary has delivered said child Jesus. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped a one-year-old kid. I mean, it doesn't say it that way, but you get the idea. He's less than two, and they are bowing down. These wealthy men in their robes and their riches are on the floor bowing before Jesus. And Mary and Joseph were probably going, what is going on? I mean, they know something's going on. God's been speaking to them through angels. You don't just, you know. But still, and dreams, I don't know. Maybe by now they're, they're chilling. I don't know. But they're wor he's worshiping. They're worshiping. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three very expensive and also very practical gifts that will be useful in Egypt. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, that is, the wise man, returned to their country by another route. Herod finds out about this. In the rest of chapter 2, they escape to Egypt so that they, because Herod sends his soldiers to Bethlehem and says, I want you to kill every boy under two years old in that village so that we get this kid and he never becomes king. Of course, God protects Jesus. Jesus goes to Egypt, which will fulfill a prophecy from the prophet Hosea who said, Out of Egypt I will call my son. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that prophecy? That it happened, that it's accurate, that it was fulfilled. Oh, by the way, and add it to the list of dozens of others that were so unlikely as well. Why is that so important? Because people have trouble believing this stuff. I mean, you and I are pretty motivated, and we have trouble believing some of these things. Of course people are going to have trouble. And then the chapter ends, return to Nazareth. And so at some point, Herod, King Herod dies. His son takes his place. Joseph and Mary come back, and then they skirt and go around Judea up to Galilee, and they move into this 
nowhereville town, go to the end of the dirt road where it ends, turn left, and maybe you'll find Nazareth after a couple days' hike. I mean, it's just nowhere anybody wants to be. What good can come of Nazareth? from Nazareth, Nathan, the disciple said? That's where he grows up in obscurity for about 30 years until he is released into a public ministry and he finds John the Baptist and he gets dunked and all that, right? So um, that starts next week. Now, chapter 3, verse 1 says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, Matthew doesn't say kingdom of God. He says kingdom of heaven. Why is that? What's the difference? There's no difference. But Matthew's audience is different. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they're very similar in what they share, what, what information you get, what stories they tell, what parables are there. John writes very differently. They're all still telling the same story, same baseline, if you, want, if you will. They all just have different melodies. The melody of Matthew, okay, is I'm writing to the Jews because I want the Jewish people to see that this is a fulfillment of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is a fulfillment of Genesis 1, 20, uh, no, 3, 15. Serpent, crush, he will crush your heel, but I will crush his head. This is a fulfillment of the scriptures that talk about the Old Testament Messiah, the New Testament, the Messiah that is to come. The Old Testament talks about him coming. The New Testament says he's come, and this is what we know about him, and this is what we do as a result of him coming. Okay? And so it, it say, and then there's the message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. So Jews would not ever say the word God. They would never say God, Yahweh, too sacred. When they wrote it on a scroll, they literally used gold as ink. It was just too sacred. So they would say kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. Okay? I, I find it interesting that Mark, whose audience is not Jewish, um, Mark writes in Mark 1.15, the time has come, he said, Jesus is quoting Jesus, the time has come, and he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus apparently had no problem saying it, which I think is awesome. Okay, so, but we don't really know exactly for sure what he said, but when Matthew wrote, he always used kingdom of heaven because he's writing to the Jews because a completed Jew is someone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah and trusts him by grace through faith, which makes him what we call Christian. Okay, right? So if you have a Jew who is a practicing Orthodox Jew, it means they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They think he's still yet to come. Well, he's coming. It might be a bit of a surprise there. So, why do I tell you all this? I tell you all this because I want you to know, what is Jesus up to? What is he up to? He's up to reaching the nations and calling them to full allegiance. Why? Because he knows what you and I crave. And he knows how to satisfy that craving. And he knows that it's sin when we give in to the temptations in our lives that robs us of full, lasting, abundant life satisfaction. And Jesus died on the cross so that we wouldn't pursue and give in to sin, but we would have the power to resist and say no to those sins, just like he had to do in the 30-plus years he lived. He was tempted like we were, like we are. He's tempted, but he never gave in, which is why he was an acceptable substitute for you and me on the cross. Never sinned. Otherwise, he's not a satisfying, atoning sacrifice. He cannot atone for the sins of the world if he sinned. Because he's not unblemished, right? Old Testament law, lamb has to be unblemished, no defects. 
That's foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So all this stuff that sounds like, oh, I've heard all this stuff in Sunday school, it never made any sense. It's like it all is there for a reason. It matters. And you go, I can't believe that the sacrificial system actually makes sense to what I want to out of life, which is I want to have a satisfying, abundant life that never ends. And God's like, yeah, it all fits together. Read the book. It's a good story. It's true. It's history. It's prophecy. It's it's science. And it's life-changing. And you and I need it. The question is, will we gladly submit to it? Right? Jesus has been given all authority by his Father so that all nations will obey all that he has commanded pledge allegiance to the Lamb, not just with our lips, but with our lives. And if that calls us to live for Him, then we live for Him. And if He calls us to die for Him, then we die for Him. But we do it gladly because there's no better way to find that lasting, satisfying life that He calls us to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you acknowledging that we like what we're hearing, maybe, but, but doing it Ooh, that's, that seems impossible. To be consistently faithful and fully pledged to you, it just seems incredibly impossible. Because we're born sinners, that's why we sin. But Lord, you have given us, through by grace through faith, in our relationship with you, you've given us the Holy Spirit. You've made us your temple. That means the spirit of the living God lives in his people. Every single one of us who has claimed, proclaimed, and confessed Jesus was Lord in our lives. That means that we have the power to resist the temptations that come our way. We have it already. So when we give in, it's not because we can't resist. It's because we choose not to in that moment whether it's because of a lack of dis discipline, a lack of vision, a lack of faith. It doesn't really matter. Those reasons are all there. It's still a decision that we make, and we must repent of our sins to make things right. You've done your part. You sent your son to die on the cross in our place so that we could live in his. But you leave us responsible for our part, and that is to repent and believe that you still love us even though we mess up even though we sin, miss the mark. I am so grateful that you are a God of grace and mercy. I need a God of grace and mercy. I have no hope apart from a God of grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, for being that kind of a God. Lord, help us to deepen our belief that this is for us, for now, and it's for us to share with others that they might come to know you too. Follow us as we follow you. But Lord, we have so many things we allow to get in between us and you. Right now, we repent of those things. We swipe them aside and we say, no more. And for those that are maybe have never made that commitment of faith, may they even now say, Lord, not I, my will, but yours be done in my life. Change my heart that I might too begin to walk and step with you. Save me from my sins. Make me your beloved. In Jesus' name, amen.